0: As we turn our attention to God's Word, let us open up in prayer. Lord, we are thankful to be here this morning, both on campus and those joining with us online. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would steady our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our emotions. Lord, that you would steady them in such a way that we would be sensitive to the Word of the Lord. Lord, that we would be sensitive to the Spirit's direction in our lives. And Lord, that we will... Trust your ways, your will, and the beautiful, amazing, powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you in advance for what you're going to do uh, during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we are going to uh, continue our sermon series that we started last week If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 979, 979. We'll specifically focus in on verse 43 towards the end of the message, but there'll be a little bit of a buildup. Uh, But I'm thankful for our church family. I'm thankful for the prayers that you have lifted up on behalf of our students and our adult leaders. Uh, The students left this past Friday to go uh, to a discipleship uh, time in Garden City, South Carolina, near Myrtle Beach. And they are going to be heading back here shortly. And so I would encourage us to continue to pray for them. I'm thankful for the time that they've been up there and looking forward to hearing uh, the testimony of what God is doing in and through them. As we continue our time in this sermon series entitled Words from the Cross... Uh, we are going to uh, do a total of seven teaching lessons through the words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. We uh, started uh, last week looking at uh, the first uh, words that Jesus spoke. We're going to do them in chronological order because I do think it's helpful for us to see uh, in, in that timeline of what Jesus said. And, and the beauty is that those, these words were spoken almost 2,000 years ago on the cross. They still very much apply to us today. Uh, There is great life and great power in the words of our Lord. Uh, Last week we looked at uh, Luke 23, the context of that, and and those first three sayings that Jesus says would have happened sometime within those first three hours when Jesus was uh, hanging on the cross, so between 9 a.m. and around noon. Uh, and so we're going to pick up on that uh, second saying that Jesus said, and that context really fits extremely well in Luke 23. And so uh, we're going to begin where we began last week in verse 13, and we're going to read through uh, several verses, and we're going to have a, a quick reminder of what we learned uh, last week in that first saying that Jesus said on the cross. But let's uh, begin in verse three, or, sorry, 13 of Luke 23 to really get the context of where we're at this morning. The scripture says that Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man, speaking of Jesus, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, and this is important, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, so the crowds of the people that were gathered there, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for uh, an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. So this was a bad dude, right? He's, he's the guy that actually deserved the death, right? Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Pilate says, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And then verse 32 says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. That's important. And Jesus said, and we know that the Greek language is saying it's a continuous saying. Jesus kept on saying, and these are the words we looked at last week, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus kept repeating that prayer to the Father. Now the question is, why did Jesus pray that prayer? And we learned from last week that there are two main reasons. One, uh, to fulfill the very purpose on why he came, right? Uh, we, we saw it 700 years before the birth of Jesus through the, the prophet Isaiah that those words were spoken. They were prophesied that one is coming To fix what man had broken. That always goes back to Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world. And so, to fulfill Jesus' purpose. Everything that happened at the cross was not a mistake. It wasn't an uh uh-oh moment. This was divine purpose by God himself, fulfilled in the Son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it was to meet our deepest need. When we look to the cross, we see where our debt can be canceled. When we look to the cross where Jesus bled and died for our sins, we see that on the cross, Jesus is addressing our spiritual blindness. And yes, on the cross, we are recognizing that the death of Jesus is sufficient for all, right? And it's an unending gift. And we learn that the, the application to that is that we are to receive the forgiveness that God offers in the cross. We are to rest there every single day as followers of Christ And as a follower of Christ, we are to reflect the very forgiveness that God has given to us to those around us. And then based on that, we're going to begin to look at the additional passage that's here that will lead us into our time this morning. So we look at the second part of verse 34 where the scripture says, And they, the Roman soldiers cast lots to divide uh, Jesus' garments. And that's a, a fulfillment of prophecy found in Psalm 22, verse 18. So that's important. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. That means they they kept mocking him. They kept uh, really turning their noses against him. And that's a continuous action word as well. Saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They kept on ridiculing him. Coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then the scripture says, there was also an inscription over him. So a, 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 a sign that said, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, the scripture says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. That means they, he kept slandering him. He kept profaning Jesus. He was abusing Jesus with his speech. So this is, this is hard language that's happening here. Saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So there's a bit of sarcasm that's coming out of this man's voice. Verse 40, but the other, talking about the other criminal, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And verse 43, and he said, Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the second saying of Jesus right there in verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, on this particular Friday, this good Friday that we will celebrate in the next uh, several weeks, 2,000 years ago, there were three individuals who were being crucified that day. Two criminals, one Jesus. And what do we know about these two particular criminals we know that both of them committed horrific crimes uh, there are words that describe them in all accounts of the gospels we we see words like criminal we see robber we see thief some translations will say bandits right uh, and, and what's important for us to understand is they're they're not being crucified on the cross uh, because uh, they robbed a Seven Eleven and took a candy bar Right? These are bad guys. These are horrific, violent people. So much so that, that they're, the violence that they enact uh, is not done in private, but it's actually very much in public. They don't care. Right? And so they are deserving of the death penalty, if you will. We also know that at one point, not just one of the criminals, but both of the criminals. We're slandering against Jesus. We're railing against Jesus. We're mocking against Jesus. We see this in Matthew's account of this particular event. In Matthew 27, verse 44, the scripture says, And the robbers who were crucified with him, talking about Jesus, also reviled him in the same way. And so you have these two criminals at the very brink of death. Right? They are breathing their very last breaths on this earth. And they're mustering up enough strength. Enough hatred to speak words against Jesus. In other words, these men were revealing the darkness and evil within the human heart. And the reality is, on some level, apart from Christ, we're just like these criminals. We do the same thing apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we enter into this world robbing God, just like they robbed God of the glory that he was due. So you have two criminals, one on the right side of Jesus, the other on the left side of Jesus. And that's the beauty of the story, right? Where's Jesus in the midst of all this? He's right in the middle. We cannot miss those simple yet beautiful details about the cross of Christ. That Jesus is right in the middle of the darkness, evil humanity that we can offer him. He is right there. You know, when Pilate gave the orders to crucify Jesus and to put Jesus in the middle of those two criminals, he had absolutely no idea that he was fulfilling the prophecy that was given 700 years earlier, right? We saw this, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Let's look at it again. The scripture says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. So this prophecy is all about Jesus, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, and this is it, and was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus was counted as a guilty sinner, and that's exactly where he is. He's right in the middle of them, right? And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Man, oh, what grace. In humanity's darkest hour, Jesus Christ is right there in the middle. And in the middle of those two guilty sinners, God is demonstrating to us that through Christ, the depths he is willing and able to go in order to save sinners. The cross reminds us that even the most wicked and evil people, they have hope. They have hope. And in our passage this morning, we're, we have these two criminals. Guess what? They're both guilty, right? They both mocked Jesus. They both heard the constant prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. They both saw the sign that hung above Jesus' head on the cross. This is the King of the Jews. But on that day, as they looked at the face of Jesus and heard the words of Jesus, one sinner, one criminal died in his sin, faced eternity without Jesus in hell. And one sinner died to his sin and was saved and spent eternity with Jesus in heaven. What a beautiful story of the power of the gospel. And so it's based on that. We're going to look at two specific things. First, the characteristics of simple faith. The characteristics of simple faith. Now, when I say simple faith, the implication here is that simple faith is saving faith when it's put in Jesus Christ, right? So that, that is very, very important. The reality is that simple faith, childlike faith is... St- sufficient enough to show that it's saving faith and yet we have we are tempted right we're tempted to make it so much more complex than it needs to be I mean think about it I mean if if you have children or grandchildren, and, and you truly want them to come to faith in Christ and, and honor the Lord with their, their entire being, sometimes we're our greatest enemy when it comes to sharing the gospel to them because we want every little thing crossed and every, everything done just perfectly. And it's like the Holy Spirit is telling us, get, get out of the way. Get out of the way. And that's what we see in this one criminal's faith in the Lord. It was so simple, yet so powerful, that it was saving faith. And what were the characteristics of this saving faith? One, a fear, a fear of God. A fear of God. We see in verse 40, uh, but the other rebuked him. So this is the criminal that uh, surrendered his life to Christ. Eventually, he says, uh, he's rebuking the other criminal saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? I mean, what an amazing transformation that has taken place in this one criminal's heart and mind just moments ago. He's joining in in the mocking. He's joining in in the slandering. He's joining in in the abusive speech being hurled at Jesus. And now there's great fear, so much so that he rebukes the other criminal. He's rebuking the other criminal because the other criminal is still saying these things along with the crowd. By the grace of God, this criminal isn't fearing for his life at the hands of the Roman soldiers. Instead, he has a tremendous fear of God. Jesus talks about where our great fear should be. In Luke 12, the scripture says, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. These are amazing words by Jesus. Jesus is setting the stage on where our greatest fear should lie. Not in the hands of man, but in the very hands of God. Of God himself this criminal recognizes that his greatest enemy and judge aren't the Romans but God in a very short time he's going to meet God his creator and he's going to have to give an account for everything that he has done and that 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 is going to be judged rightly and justly he's very aware that what awaits him right around the corner is future retribution he's going to have to pay for what he's done and one of the first signs of saving faith is a fear of the Lord in fact, the scripture says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? The scripture goes on to say in Romans 3, it's the unrepentant sinner who has no fear of God in their eyes. But by the grace of God, this criminal does. He fears God and praise be to God for that. The second characteristics that we see about simple saving faith is an admission of guilt. An admission of guilt. We see this in verse 41. The scripture says, and we, talking about the two criminals, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. This criminal, by the grace of God, is acknowledging his guilt. He's saying what? I am the lawbreaker. I have earned this punishment. There is no one else to blame. I can't blame my upbringing. I can't blame my circumstances. I can't blame my bent towards specific temptations that lead to sin. I have no one to blame but myself. And yes, it is true that my punishment according to the laws of Rome is death. I know full well that ultimately my sin is against God. David recognized this same awareness of sin, that though our sin does negatively impact those around us, yes, that is true. Ultimately, our sin is first and foremost against a holy God. David writes in Psalm 51, during that time of great confession, he says in verse 4, against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This criminal, he recognizes his guilt and he's broken over his sin. And it's to those who are broken over their sin that Jesus himself said on the great sermon on the mount in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's in this moment, by the grace of God, this criminal recognizes that his situation is desperate. It's quite helpless. There is absolutely nothing else he can do. There's nothing he can do to make it right. He is the guilty one. And he says that Jesus is not only the innocent one, but the sinless one. That's what he's implying in his words, that this man has done nothing wrong. Not only is he innocent of the crime that they are accusing him of. In fact, he actually is being truthful. He is the king of the Jews but he is actually the sinless one. Jesus has done nothing wrong. In fact, that's the testimony of many. I mean, think about Judas for just a moment. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus. He himself says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate himself testified on multiple occasions. I find no fault in this man. Pilate's wife even said, have nothing to do with this just man, this righteous man, this sinless man. And now as Jesus hangs on the cross by God's grace, God opens the eyes to this criminal's heart and he recognizes his guilt. And it's in his helplessness. He's relying on the mercy of God. It's the same picture that we get in Luke 18. In Luke 18, you have two people enter into the sanctuary. One is the the self-sufficient religious one. Look at me, right? I'm so glad I'm not like him. And yet there's another man that enters into that same sanctuary in the very presence of God, and he recognizes, And I need God to be merciful to me. Look at the account in Luke 18, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this criminal fears God, and he, he admits his guilt, He's truly relying on the mercy of God. And then we see the third characteristic of simple saving faith, and that is a surrender to Jesus. A surrender to Jesus. By the grace of God, this criminal surrendered his life to Jesus. Verse 42, the scripture says, and he said, and that that Greek uh, translation is he kept on, this was like continuous in his words time and time and time again. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal in simple saving faith is pleading for Jesus to forgive him. And he uses the word remember. That's an important word because the word that he's specifically using for remember isn't just saying, Jesus, keep me in mind one day. Bring it to your attention one day. The word remember here is a word about action. In other words, Jesus, I need you to act on my behalf because you are the only one who can. Remember the inscription above Jesus on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. And guess what? On that day, by the grace of God, this criminal believed every single word that that sign said. Jesus, you're the one and only one who can take away my sins. You are the true king. You have complete authority and I surrender to you. You are my king. And in that surrender, this criminal is saved Paul writes in Romans 10, 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The criminal says, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, act on my behalf. What an amazing testimony of God's saving grace. For all we know, this criminal who deserved everything that was coming to him in the eyes of Rome and who deserved everything that was coming to him, eternal separation in the eyes of God, guess what? He saw a sign this is the king of the Jews, and he heard a prayer, Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and guess what? It was enough. We make it so complicated. It was absolutely enough. Simple faith became saving faith. Why? Because his faith was in Jesus Christ. To this one criminal, the Savior, the king, who hung on that middle cross, intervened on his behalf. The one who is just is also the one who is the justifier. That's what Romans 3 reminds us of. That's why Jesus is the most important part about your life. Because he is the one who is just and he is the one who is also the justifier. Romans 3:23 through 26, the scripture says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Guess what? Every single one of us is guilty and are justified. By his grace as a gift in Christ, he gives us something that we do not deserve. It's a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus chooses to pay the price whom God put forward as a what? A propitiation by his blood. Jesus is our substitute to be received by faith. And Now, why would God do it this way? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who judges rightly, sends the righteous one to stand in our place on the cross, and in doing so, he makes a way for our sins to be forgiven and at the same time to fulfill his very justice. That's the beauty of the cross. Simple faith is saving faith. How? How? Because we fear God, we acknowledge our guilt, and we surrender to Jesus. The question is, are these characteristics of simple saving faith a reality for you today? Have you come to a place in your life where there is a fear of God? Now, as a follower of Christ, we don't fear God that he's going to judge us for our sin. We fear God because we want to honor him. We want to be in awe of who he is. We want to uh, bless his holy name. Have you come to a place where you're acknowledging your guilt? No more blame shifting, no more... If if my circumstances were different, this is how how I am, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? So the first thing that we see in our passage is the characteristics of simple, saving faith. The second uh, characteristics that we're going to see is that of salvation. salvation. Notice Jesus' words in verse 43. The scripture uh, says, and he, speaking of Jesus, said to him, talking about that one criminal that surrendered his life to him, It says, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. At the cross, we see and witness the salvation of this criminal. And what do we learn about salvation in this verse? There are many things, but I want to focus on two things this morning. First, salvation is certain. Salvation is certain. It is a guarantee. Salvation in Christ is a guarantee. And that's what we see in this passage. The first part there says, and he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be. Every word that Jesus spoke are words of great certainty, words of great guarantee. The word truly speaks of an absolute fact. And who's the one who's speaking? Jesus himself is speaking. And he's speaking to this one criminal. So the words that Jesus is speaking is so personal. Out of the entire crowd, out of all the noise. In the midst of the, the the cruelest act of crucifixion Ju- jesus is saying the words to him jesus says i'm talking to you and with hundred percent certainty jesus speaks to this criminal and says today you will be you know you ever uh, go online and you sign up for something and the one thing that you're looking for after the fact is that confirmation right I need the email confirmation. How many of you have ever signed up for something and you didn't get the email confirmation? And you're wondering, well, did it, did it go through? I mean, I told my wife, it's, we're all good. I mean, are we all good? Do I need a, a matter of fact, I'll tell a funny story. When uh, the, the buses to go up to uh, Garden City for the students, uh, they got, <laughs> Marvin got a confirmation. Uh, but it wasn't the confirmation that made you feel really good, right? It wasn't like one of those ones like, oh, yeah, we're locked, we're ready to go. It was kind of like those, uh, I need to make some phone calls, right? And, of course, it worked out because the the students aren't here with us. Um, But think about that for just a minute. Jesus is saying, I am your confirmation number. And that confirmation never has an expiration date. It is always good. Nothing will stop Jesus, not the nails, not the mocking, not the flogging, from saving this criminal's soul. And oh, the peace that this criminal must have experienced in that very moment. Even with the nails in this criminal's hands and feet, peace overwhelmed his soul, because in Christ his salvation was certain and secured. And notice, this is the beauty of the gospel. Notice that this man offered nothing to Jesus he offered nothing. He joined at nothing. He signed up for nothing. He had no time to get his life in order. No time to show himself worthy. No time to make up for past mistakes, past regrets. No time to apologize to all those who were wrong. Because the very victims of his crime, believe it, they, they're in the crowd. They're waiting for this man to be killed. And there's no time to apologize. No time to make all those wrongs right. No time to be a better husband, a better father, a better brother, a better citizen. No time to win over the approval of the crowd that surrounded him that day. No time to put his best foot forward and to make something of himself. No time to wear his best outfit on that day. No time to read his Bible from cover to cover. No time to give a tithe or an offering. No time for a mission trip. No time for a place of service. He had nothing to offer Jesus except for simple saving faith. God, be merciful to me a sinner. The grace of God so overwhelmed his soul. He fully put his faith in Jesus. And what a reminder to us all today. It's by grace through faith. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been, you have been saved. In other words, this is God's work, not ours. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, this criminal got far more Than he could ever imagine. Remember the criminal's request. What did he say? Remember me when you come. There's a future tense there, right? One day out there, will you remember me? Jesus says, today. Today. Immediate, secure, and certain salvation. Man, what peace that brings us today. The certainty, the security of your salvation because of the work of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Man, the very fact that Jesus will finish what he started, not because we are better or good enough, not because we have time to put our best foot forward, not because we have time to do this and do that and do this and do that, but because of what God is doing. Salvation is certain Second thing we're going to see about salvation this morning is salvation is about a relationship. A relationship. And this is so, so important. The second thing, uh, the second part of what Jesus says here is very, very important. He says, uh, Truly, truly, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Now let's unpack this. The scripture talks about paradise. Uh, It's mentioned uh, three times in the New Testament, it's always a reference to uh, heaven. the word paradise is used 24 times in the Old Testament. And it's interesting because out of those 24 times, 13 of those occurrences happen in Genesis 2 and 3. So two chapters in the Bible, right? It's a reference to the Garden of Eden. It's, that's the reference of paradise. It was a place of unending blessing from the Lord. The greatest blessing is what? Relationship and fellowship with God. That is the greatest blessing. That relationship was the most important thing in the Garden of Eden. But when sin entered into the world through the first Adam, right? Genesis 3, guess what? It severed that relationship. But praise be to God, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus, is coming to fix and to restore not only the garden, paradise, if you will, but to give us what? A new heaven and a new earth. And it's in the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no more sin, suffering, death, tears, sadness, or sorrow. And all those who have looked to Christ for their salvation will be gathered around the Lord forever. We will be reunited again. Praise God. How many of you are looking forward to that day? Praise be to God. But notice the focus that Jesus gives at the end of verse 43. Jesus says, with me in paradise. Sometimes we focus more on the in paradise part and not the first part, with me. The emphasis is on what? With me. Being with Jesus in unbroken relationship and fellowship is what makes heaven heaven, right? Without Jesus, heaven isn't heaven at all. Heaven is not a place where we can go and just see Jesus. It's not like a museum. Praise God for that. Heaven is a place where we get to experience everything about Jesus. Heaven isn't just about a place. It's about a person, the person of Jesus Christ himself. And notice how we see the emphasis on the relationship all throughout Scripture, in fact, when uh, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, he says these words. In Philippians 1, 21 through 23, says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Should I live or should I die, right? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul says, in Christ, if I live, great. If I die, even greater, right? There is no loss in Christ. To die is far better because I will be with Christ. And the emphasis is where? On the relationship. I will be with Christ. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says these words in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 8 through 9. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and yet home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So Paul, again, is saying absent for the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. The last breath I breathe on this earth, I'm with him, right? I'm with Jesus, right? In fact, when the criminal breathed his last breath on that day, guess where he was? On that day, today, he was with Jesus. It's a reminder to us that there is no purgatory, right? There's no waiting room. There's no, did I do enough? It's Jesus, yes, heaven. Jesus, no, hell. Right? that's, that's, That's the route. And here the scripture says what? What is the emphasis on this to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord? To be home with the Lord right? It's about the relationship. And it's that relationship that comforts us not only for the future to come, but the here and now. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says these words, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him. So he's talking about all the saints who have already uh, died in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So these are future events, right? Future events to come. And notice uh, what happens here. Paul says, when that future event comes, we will what? We will always be with the Lord. Again, the emphasis of salvation is the relationship. It's almost like you have to condition your heart and mind to say, I don't care what else is there. I know it's going to be far greater than I could ever imagine. Just give me Jesus. Right? I'm not going to get hung up on, is my dog going to be there? Is this person going to be there? Is that person going to be there? Again, God judges the heart, right? Because there's probably going to be a lot of people we think are there that aren't there. And there's probably going to be a lot of people we didn't think were going to be there are going to be there. Right? We don't know. But just give me Jesus. Right? Give me Jesus. That's what the scripture is teaching us here. And he says, because of that, there's great encouragement. There's great encouragement. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. In other words, the body they may kill, but the grave will not and cannot hold you. Right? That's what the scripture is teaching us. So do you see the characteristics of simple, saving faith? Fear God, acknowledge your guilt, surrender to Jesus. Do you see the characteristics of salvation? It is certain, and it's about a relationship. We cannot lose sight of the relationship. Eternal life isn't just when you get to heaven. Eternal life is now You get to experience that relationship now. Now the question is, why didn't the other criminal receive Christ? He's heard everything. He saw everything that the other criminal heard. Remember the scripture says that the, the cross is foolish. Foolish to many. Is the cross foolish to you today? I mean, there's a lot that I don't understand, and that's why I praise God for simple faith. Right? The question is, have you put your faith in him? If this dying criminal was not beyond the reach of divine mercy and grace, then neither are you. Will you respond to that invitation of grace? About 200 years ago, uh, a man by the name of William Cowper wrote a very famous hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. Listen to the words. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I will sing. The power to save. You know, the most important thing about us is what we do with Jesus. Our eternal, our eternal security hinges on him. It's never too late to turn to Christ. This man did it with his very last breath. I'm certainly not encouraging that by any means because we don't know, right? Even when the very worst can be saved and God has made the way of salvation as simple as it possibly can. With Jesus at your side, the greatest scene of despair gives way to an even greater reality of paradise, now and forever, in the very presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, do you see, I mean, those first two sayings. What was on the heart of Christ? Father, forgive them. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I mean, there was so much that Jesus could have said, but he focused on those two things first. Why? Because that was the very reason why he came. To fix what we broke, to restore a relationship that was severed, knowing that there was nothing we could do. And even in our spiritual blindness, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they not know what they do. And on the cross, at that very moment, with the two criminals on each side, Jesus is displaying the message of the gospel. And one's heart was softened, and he received Jesus as his Savior. The other heart was hardened, and he was separated from Jesus for all eternity in hell. Listen, it's your choice, right? The power of the cross is sufficient for all, but it's only applied to those who have put their faith in Christ. Do you believe that God is able? I mean, as you sit here today, if you're a follower of Christ and you just think about the people in your life, the ones who seem so far off, do you truly believe that God is able? For you today, if you've never received Christ, do you believe that God is able? The cross shows us, yes, he is, time and time again. As we close our time and respond.